Hey, this is Steve Balton. Thanks again for joining us on My Turning Point. Today we are at the Sunset Marquee Nightbird Studio with Paul Banks from Interpol. You may notice that right now my voice sounds okay. It does not sound okay during the interview. Paul was a trooper. He sounded great. My voice is shot. It was when I had uh, laryngitis. So just forgive the voice. But Paul is great and he sounds awesome. So take us through your, your turning point. What was that one moment for you where you sort of shifted your life and led you to be here at the Marquee as part of Interpol? I was, uh, I guess I was a 10th grader and Nirvana broke. And that was, you know, the first time I heard Nevermind was, I, I was already a guitarist but it wasn't like locked in as like that's what I'm going to do with my life and then when when Nirvana broke and I was watching like the video for Lithium and uh that's when I decided you know for my you know my my life path will be to try and be a professional musician like like those guys and from then on you know when 10th grade 11th grade you have guidance counselors kind of saying like what what do you want to be and I would say like I want to be a rock star and they kind of look at me like all right you know asshole <laughs> But I, I also had like an epiphany at that same point in my life where it was like, you know, the cliche of dare to dream. I kind of felt like there's there's a real truth to that, which is that like, how the fuck are you going to get there if you don't dare to like, you know, put it out in the universe that that's what you want? And I remember I had a, you know, like a kind of defined sense as well as like, wait a minute. So you tell me somebody gets to do that for a living, you know, of all, of all the things that you're allowed to do, like allowed to do, I felt like if someone can do that, then why not me? That's so interesting. What was it about them in particular? <clears throat> and excuse me, everybody, my voice is shot, So, but Paul sounds great. But what I was going to say is, what is it about them in particular that made you feel like it was something that you could do? Or was it just the combination of the age and the music yeah. hitting at the same time? Well, it's the age and the music, but and it wasn't so much that I can do it. It was that I want that. That was what, and you know, just daring to say that even to yourself, that's what I want out of my life. Uh, you know, before that, I was really I was being transported by music. I had started guitar because uh, the song "Dream On" by Aerosmith was, you know, if there was a moment in time where your brain is sort of like you know getting reconfigured as you enter into adolescence or something, that song just happened to hit while my brain was going you know into that next phase. Of like now, music is starting to give me goosebumps, and and it was that song that made me pick up a guitar. And then fast forward two years and Nirvana's breaking and then it was like, okay, I'm going to take this passion for music and try and be like those dudes. But it wasn't, you know, I feel like even intuitively at that age, I knew like, you know, Nirvana is inimitable. You know, there's no, I'm going to grow up and be just like that guy. It was more that like he was the inspiration of like that that's a, a path that one can have in life. And I, I guess I felt that he was doing this transcendent... Um, he was exercising demons. He was getting out all of his rage. He was getting out all of his, you know, self-expression, and it kind of was like, oh, you know, there's, there's a way to have everything that's inside like eating you up. There's a way to externalize it, and then also, you know, have people applaud that you're doing that. What's so fascinating about that to me is I never met Kurt Cobain. I did not get to interview him. Steven Tyler, I've interviewed multiple times. They seem to be such a divergent 
oh, sort sure. of personality. Yeah. So it's really interesting to think about how those two form then come into Interpol and into your music. Because every musician I talk to is a cross-section of influences. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Stephen is this larger-than-life personality, and, and Kurt became larger-than-life. But the thing was, he was very deliberate about wanting to seem like not this untouchable rock star and be more something that you could be. So when you take those yeah, two personalities together, how do you feel like those have transformed into your music? Well, I mean, one thing I did want to say about, you know, to clarify with the Aerosmith thing is we're talking about Dream On, which is a song that I think in the in the course of their history as a band, like you might hear that song and be like, that's not Steven Tyler. That's a different singer. That doesn't even sound like him. You know, it was sort of so early on that he had a different sort of intonation on the mic. And then also, much like a lot of Nirvana songs, it's kind of like a two-string track. Dee-doo-dee-doo, you know, and like, like sort of minimalistic two-string guitar parts. So anyway, it's not, it wasn't Walk This Way. So what you're saying, it was more of a musical. And yeah, and if you like, he's putting his heart out in Dream On. Do you know what I mean? And so I actually think the song Dream On and the work of Nirvana are not totally foreign from each other. The persona of Steven Tyler over the ages versus the persona of Kurt, for sure, are, are very different. And I think, you know, I'd never really thought about this, actually, but I often get asked, you know, about performers and performance. And I always kind of say that I've never really felt like a performer, which isn't like a, a snobbery thing that I made a conscious choice that I don't want to be demonstrative like the rock gods uh it's not it was just that that ain't me very very sincerely that ain't me but i always admired your mick jaggers and your steven tyler's because you can clearly see that's them like that dude is going to be a spaz at a party let alone you know on stage like it's very natural to them to be you know all that stuff they do on stage that persona david lee roth you know he couldn't be anything but that guy Whereas I think Kurt Cobain, I guess I did always identify a little bit more with, I remember I watched them on stage and like the dude didn't do anything on stage. You know what I mean? Um, so I guess something about that maybe I identified with without even really realizing that that would be my natural comfort also as a performer is to be a little bit more you know, subdued in terms of the performance of it, but then the actual energy that's coming out of you and your music being intense. That's interesting, though. Do you feel like it's evolved over time? Because what happens, of course, as a performer, as anything in life, you get more comfortable. You get more confident as you get older. So maybe when you're younger and you're more self-conscious about how you you know, demonstrate, act mm. as you get older, you feel more comfortable letting more of yourself out there. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's been the case for you a little bit? I mean, that's interesting. Um, not As a performer, nothing has really changed. But I guess like... Do you feel like it's changed though musically and especially in your songwriting? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think as a singer, I've gotten more comfortable um, and evolved. You know, I also kind of think it's just really healthy to sort of not really sweat what you used to do or what you used to be. I remember there's like a great writer like Thoreau who said like, uh, you shouldn't, you know, your past is like this cadaver that you're dragging around behind you. And it's like, fuck it. Like, stop dragging that around. Like, you should not really sweat at all what you used to be or what people think you are or you know, should be. I always like that idea too. Well, it's interesting because if I'm remembering correctly and everything blurs together because I suck with dates and especially doing so many interviews, but I do recall seeing you guys do in the last couple of years, you did do an anniversary. And I feel like for so often what happens when that's the case, it, it becomes in a way sort of a, a cleansing of the past. It's mm. a letting, I got to interview Jim Carroll once who was one of my heroes, wow. right? And he talked about doing the bonfire where he would do the literal bonfire of his papers and all this. 
but it almost becomes like an anniversary, becomes like a metaphorical bonfire where you're like, okay, we're sort of saying goodbye to this. Mm. And then you can move on to and see, you know, how you evolve as an artist going forward. So do you feel like having done the anniversary, having celebrated the past, it's also made it easier for you on the new music, which I have heard the EP, to go forward and say, you know what, this is who I am now. And we kind of said goodbye to the past in a way. I mean, I feel like it's always been easy for me to say this is who I am now. Um, it, it Like the ceremony of putting it to bed in a way, and I get what you're saying about the anniversary, it's sort of like, like a bookend on it or something. Um, but that didn't give me any particular like sense of liberation creatively after having done that. It was just fun to do that for me. And I, I know I've seen other bands, like I saw Trans Am do Future World, and I liked it. You know what I mean? Right. So I kind of get it from a fan standpoint. I think I would have been wary were we not making a new record when we did the anniversary thing. I think it would have been a look like what you got nothing going on if you're just doing like 10-year-old records or whatever, 15-year-old records. Um, but because we were like half into the new one, I felt like, no, let's go do that. That'll be fun, you know. And it and it was. Well, it's interesting because <clears throat> my favorite artist of all time is Springsteen. Cool. And you know, ninety ninety did the reunion tour, the only greatest hits tour he's ever done. Mm. You know, it was after sixteen years of the E Street Band being apart. For you, are there artists that you've really looked to and admire for the way that they were able to evolve? And like you say, you wouldn't have wanted to do the anniversary tour if you didn't have new music, yeah. but it didn't feel like something living in the past. So who are those artists for you that you look up to over the years for the way that they've continually evolved and changed? Mm-hmm. And, you know, whatever they do, you know, it's reflective of who they are at that moment versus simply, cool, now we're going to go play the State Fair. And no knock on the State Fair, because I've seen Paul Simon and Bob Dylan play the State Fair, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, I mean, funnily enough, yeah, I can totally list a couple. I, You know, Bob Dylan for me, I feel like, was it uh, Time Out of Mind, I think? You know, yeah. being like a very critically acclaimed and, you know, One Grammy solid, for Album of the Year. Solid record. Uh, Nick Cave is someone I really admire and look up to and you just I, you just feel like he's more creative than ever, you know. And he's also more vibrant as a performer. Have you seen the recent shows? I've seen him live not recently, but he was fucking amazing. Yeah. Oh my god, these recent tours it's like a whole other level. Yeah, I saw him with Grinderman uh-huh. and Warren Ellis on the violin or whatever his name is and just like these dudes are the fucking as cool as it gets, man. And it's just like beyond any concept of age or how long he's been doing it he's just the shit you know so he's a big one Radiohead I really like how they've come you know how they've spanned their career um, Leonard Cohen I felt like I was still interested in what he was doing Cool Keith is an artist who I feel like has this amazing ability to never lose his creativity uh, he might you know I've, I've just always felt he's been yeah he's always fresh to me well see what's interesting about that is for you you know, talk about how you feel all of this reflects in the current music. And when you look at it, you know, sort of that evolution. And and it's interesting because I think one of the things that I like as well, look, I talk about this with artists all the time, right? You wrote a song when you're 22, 23, right? You're 35, you're 40. That's like a different person. Yeah. So I, I think what happens is you kind of will make this two part question. One, you start to really appreciate some of that older stuff because for once you can step away from it and kind of look at it and be like, okay, you know, this is who I am. And what I was going to ask you about the the evolution, though, from a music standpoint, we'll do this part first. You know, it's interesting when you do an EP then. I like that fact that it's like reflective of this is music today. Mm. We don't have to just say, okay, we're putting out 12 or 13 songs to do a tour. It's like we want to play live. We can throw out five great songs 
and it also keeps touring fresh for the band as well as mm. the fans. Yeah. So talk about the idea behind the AEP and you know why you decided to go that route versus you know okay we're gonna have, we have to make a whole album. I think we liked the idea. And I think being mindful of the way that music is is received these days where it's just like there's so much content for people. And I think it was this idea of like, if we're going to be out there promoting Marauder for a long time, let's give the fans some more while while we're still out there. So we we had, and we had this idea when we were recording Marauder. And then we, so, you know, that's why the EP was recorded with Fridman at that same time, uh, with the exception of Fine Mess, which we kind of went back and revisited. Um yeah, I don't know, man. It just seemed kind of like, yeah, you don't need, you're not limited to any real means of releasing music anymore. I still stand by albums because that's how I process music. Um, it, however, I might encounter a song, I always want to go find more of songs like that from the same time period as that song. So I look to records and listen to them all the way through. Um, but at the same time, you know, artists are dropping songs here, songs there, collaborations here, collaborations there, and that's like what people are used to. So I thought. It was cool to like kind of modernize and, and engage with our fans that extra step, like in ways that we haven't done in the past, where it's sort of like we put this out and then wait four years and then put the next thing out. It's kind of, you know, the one two punch. Well, but does it also make the music fresher for you having new songs to play on a nightly basis? It does, for sure. But it's tough now, like being six albums deep, because you don't want to disregard whole albums from the past. You want every record to be kind of represented. Um, so there's not you can't always play I, we can't play as many songs off of Marauder as I would like to because I think we're Daniel especially is very mindful of the concert goers experience and so we are here to promote Marauder but there are fans that really want to hear PDA and so we're just not the kind of band to be like fuck that it's old we're not going to play it I think we are really concerned with showing people the new music in the live context but also kind of just giving a good showing of all the records we put out well, it's interesting, and this goes back to what I was asking about the older music taking on new meaning. <clears throat> when you put together the show, it's funny, by the way, my friend that I was just with was like, dude, you cannot do a podcast, and the voice is going to go, mm -hmm. but you sound great. So <clears throat> when you do that old music, talk about putting together the show, the new songs, that, or the older songs that you develop an appreciation for, and how all of this comes together for you. And again, when you're sequencing a show, when you're putting the stuff from Marauder on there, or when you're putting stuff from Fine Mess on there, you're then looking at what of the older material fits for you. So talk about you know how those older songs have changed for you and one or two that you really have a new appreciation for or that maybe it's not a new appreciation, maybe you just haven't thought about in 10 years. Yeah, I mean, it was fun. The, the Bright Lights tour was fun because there was definitely songs off that record that we hadn't played since you know in many, many years. Um, right now we're playing a song called Public <clears throat> Pervert Live, which was always one of my favorites and I just, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm so happy to be playing it. Um... Yeah, I'm trying to, I don't, I don't know though. For me, they're all kind of fun. And I mean, you, let, let's say you, you want to play the singles, you want to prioritize the songs that people are going to know, and then you want to sort of choose wisely which deep cuts you're going to play for your own joy and also for those fans who like just happens to be like, oh, Leif Erikson was my favorite song off of that record. You know, it's like a deeper cut, for instance. Which deep cuts are you going to sprinkle through? Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I really just see it as kind of fun. It doesn't seem, it's not really like rocket science. We, we argue a lot about it, though, as well, uh, in, um, amongst ourselves. And then there'll be a song that I'm really jonesing to play, but Sam's just like, nah, man, I can't play that shit every night. You know? <laughs> well, so I was just going to ask you, you about and you that. Can't, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't win an argument with a musician who doesn't want to play a song. It's just really like you just got to go with the flow. 
So how do you get a song that you really love, like Public Pervert, which hasn't been in the set for a long time? How do you work that back into the set? Well, hoping that everyone gets on the same page with it, you know. And if because we're kind of like a trio, the the, the real decision makers. Anytime there's two people with a firm opinion on something, they generally going to get their way. So I, I think it was. I think everybody was happy to play Public Pervert. But again, there's no real reason to do that song other than that we like playing it. That was never a single. I don't even know if that's anyone's favorite song. It's just like a lot of fun for me, per, you know, in particular to play live. It's interesting too because we talk about all this stuff and it just kind of, it's funny, things will pop into my head and I'm like, oh shit, you're doing this tour with Morrissey and you want to talk about the person who is, you know, as big a nonconformist as anyone there is. Right. So talk about for you how that inspires you. And I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, Morrissey is one of those people a lot of people have opinions on. Mm. But it's, in, I mean, it's the same, you cannot deny the songwriting. And you're fucking going out with the guy who wrote There is a Light. Right. You know, so for you, talk about what that means just as a fan, because it's funny, because we started this whole interview talking about you as the fan and hearing Nirvana. I mean, and it's, I, I think one of the cool things is you never lose that sense of fandom. Could you have ever imagined that one day you'd be out with the lead singer of the Smiths? I mean, We've been very fortunate to play with like a lot of legends. I was just telling someone we've opened for Pearl Jam, we've opened for U2, we've opened for The Cure, now Morrissey. I think there's a, I guess in a lot of ways I look at it from the audience's point of view. I feel like that's just going to be a good show for the audiences. And I think a lot of people who, there's an overlap of aesthetic between what we do and what they do um, and what he does. Uh, I've always admired him as a lyricist. That was, I remember as a, as a young kid hearing Beware I Hold More Grudges Than Lonely High Court Judges. And that was like on a commercial song on the radio. And I was like, nope, that's different. That, that's not a line I'm hearing from other artists. So that was, that was what he got on my radar with. And I think that was a Morrissey song. I don't even think that was a Smith song. Well, it's interesting because I don't know how open he is to the idea of collaboration, but <coughs> in hypothetical, if you were to sing one Morrissey song with him, hmm. What would you want it to be? And conversely, if you were to have him guest on one Interpol song, what would it be? Ooh. I'll go with the one that I just mentioned on Morrissey, but I don't even know what the title of that song is. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Uh, not by the lyric, but I'll, yeah, I'll Google it because now I'm just curious. It's yeah. lyric though, right? You yeah, I, I mean, that's the thing is like, it's funny because he can be... Let's just say not the easiest guy. Yeah. But you cannot deny a song like Alma Mater's, for example, Every Day is Like Sunday. I mean, again, oh. he's absolutely just a lyrical genius. Hey, you know what? I love that song, Every Day is Like Sunday. Yeah, It's a great song. Yeah, I love that song. What's it, the name of that one? It's, it's that, called Every Day is Like yeah. Sunday, yeah. That's a great fucking song. Yeah. Yeah, good. Thanks for mentioning that one. I'll go with that. Okay. I, I would sing that one. Um, yeah, and what a great lyric. I don't even know if I paused to think about that lyric. That's a great lyric. And as far as what song he could do with us, I don't know. Came, Take You on a Cruise came to mind for some reason. I guess any of the ones where we veer a little bit more to the croony kind of approach. Mm -hmm. Maybe Leif Erikson. It's interesting, too. And we'll, we'll wrap up. Is it, now, wait, you were saying you have a golf date after yeah, this, right? Yeah, yeah. And what's your handicap? Oh, dude, I'm not that into golf. Uh, my mother is really good at golf, and my brother's way into it, so it became something that I figured I'll take that up and have something to do with my family. And I really like it, but... I'm a perfectionist with everything and sporting included, but I think I kind of like figured it out with golf because I'm definitely the kind of guy who, as a young man, I would have like been breaking, you know, fucking golf clubs out of frustration. But because I've always approached it as like, well, of course I suck at this game, and I don't, I don't put much thought into it. 
So then it's always just kind of pleasantly surprised when I hit a solid drive or just like hit the ball straight. But I'm still at that point of like, let's say the last time I golfed, I was still asking people, what should I use for this shot? It is funny though, because I used to play in college with a friend, right? And when I say play, we would get stoned and then we would go to like the nine hole course. Mm -hmm. And I was terrible. Like, but there is that moment where you sink a putt that you have no business sinking. And it is like the best feeling in the world. Yeah. So for you, what have been one or two of those moments? And it's interesting, and I ask this specifically, because it's funny you say about being a perfectionist. I would imagine as well that anything in your life you can learn to let go of a little bit, mm. it goes back into the music. And it just makes you more comfortable with the idea of, because look, as an artist, you want to do your best work at every single thing you can. Mm-hmm. But as I always say, if John Coltrane had done the best he could with A Love Supreme, there would have been no reason for him to ever make another record. Wow. So wait, what's the question there? So the question is, it's kind of a two-part. One, on a fun note, your your best golf moment. Um, I had three shots that were, uh, I, I got to the green, I think I, I shot like a, I shot par on like a, on a by, by the professional standards for that hole. Like I was on the green in three of a, of a hole that apparently that's like not normal. And it was just because I had like, when I get a hold of it, I really get a hold of it. And I happened to get a hold of it three times consecutively. And it was just like a perfect hole. And my mother was, I'm not quite sure why she was so impressed, but apparently there's a, there's a, it's not easy to do on that particular hole. So that was one. But again, it's like kind of when the fluke locks in and I got three flukes in a row, you know, because other than that, then the next hole I'll shoot like an eight on a par three, you know. <laughs> but I imagine as well, it's also kind of cool because you were doing it with your mom yeah, yeah, and then you impressed her. I did. I did. I impressed her in her own game. But that's with golf. It's like when you do it right, like the ball just fucking flies, and that's a very cool feeling because you know it's yeah, it's like the sweet spot. And I think many things in life have sweet spots where everything just gets so much better when you hit the sweet spot. Well, that goes back to the golf as music metaphor. Right. For you as a writer, this is what I was saying. You always want to do your best work, but sometimes you just hit those moments where you're like, "This is special." So, mm. give me examples of some of the stuff recently, or maybe even on the new EP, "Fine Mess," where you feel like you really hit that sweet oh, spot? I'll, I, good question, man, because there really was one. Um, in Fine Mess, when I wrote the bass line and Sam was working on the beat and we get to the, the chorus, the, the verse is kind of standard for us, but the, the chorus is just like stone cold groove. And it was something where like Sam and I, you know, we've, we've had moments where when I became the rhythm section or joined the rhythm section on the last two records, it's always fun with him. And then we've had a couple magic moments and I felt like, the, the chorus of Fine Mess was like a magic moment of like, there we go, like lay that shit down, Sam. And I'm, you know, more minimal bass part, just like filling in the holes and kind of adding to the bounce of what he's doing. But I, I feel like we fucking locked in on something there. It's interesting. We'll wrap up on this note and take it back to the turning point for you. When you have that moment, when you have that sweet spot, when you hit upon something that's special for you, does it reinvigorate? Does it take you back to that feeling of being in 10th grade? And hearing music and knowing this is what I want to do. Because I look, it's like anything. You love what you do, but you still have to find those moments where you, as someone I was talking to recently, I can't remember, said, you have to rekindle the romance. Hmm. I think I'm very fortunate being a member of Interpol because it's not my burden creatively entirely. I'm, I react to my, my peers in that band. I think if you're the sole singer-songwriter of a project, a lot of these things are different where you might have to get back in touch with something. But Daniel's on his own journey as a songwriter. And so 
I intersect with him when he shows me what he's been writing. And then that generally gets me a lot of ideas to, as like a vocalist. And then Sam as well, like whatever angle he's coming from as a drummer now, like impacts what I do on the bass, which is actually a new instrument for me. And so there's lots of ways in which Interpol has always stayed fresh for me. And I think that's very fortunate. And it has a lot to do with like, I don't have to do everything. I get to just like respond to their creativity a lot of the time. Well, right, then I have to wrap up on this note because that's interesting to me because, you know, you mentioned going out with like U2, The Cure, <coughs> Pearl Jam. U2 and Pearl Jam are very much cohesive bands. Mm. The Cure, however, has been more of a Robert Smith thing. That changes over the years. You know, so for you being with these bands, I mean, you know, are there particular things that you've learned or that really stood out to you or that, you know, just getting to watch all these musicians that that really did stand out to you? Um, that's another great question. Uh, I mean, I didn't really, ha I didn't meet Pearl Jam or hang out with them, but I've spent time with you two, and I spent time with The Cure, and I guess I don't know if I got too much insight into like being in a band, other than that every band has a lot of the same problems that you have to get through, and it's really a matter of like probably love that solves it. I think definitely in U 2s case, I think they have like a lot of faith and a lot of love, and I think that really protects them throughout their career. Um, but I, I like I learned so much working with RZA, for instance, as a collaborator. I think sometimes like other people that I've actually worked with creatively, I learn a lot from. Uh, whether that, in his case, I learned a lot about like uh, letting go of my ego because I, if there was ever anything that I was not sure about that he wanted to do, we never fought. He'd just be like, "Okay, cool," and I kind of realized like, "Oh my God, he's so evolved as a person that his ego is not." being brought into any of these situations. He's just, you know, here to make art. And it's like, you know, be water, kind of, you know, the Bruce Lee thing. I kind of, he's one of the first people I worked with. I was like, man, this guy really has his shit together as, as, a, as an artist. And uh, I, I took a lot away from that. Hey, this is Steve Balton. Thanks again for joining us on My Turning Point with our guest today, Paul Banks from Interpol. I hope you survived the raspiness of my voice, but as I told you, he sounded great. Thanks so much to Paul for the stories, how Nirvana changed his life, hearing about his golfing. I'm glad we got him out in time to make his golf date. We'll see you next time on My Turning Point. Thanks. you're probably worried that your child is feeling scared, sad, or alone when all you want is for them to just feel like a kid. Camp Kesem is a free week-long overnight camp for children ages 6 to 18 who have a parent facing cancer and was created for kids like yours to have a joyful and empowering summer. Kids have a blast together enjoying camp activities surrounded by a compassionate community of friends. Register your child for a free life-changing adventure at kesem.org camp. Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 